0: Let's see if we can pick up the thread here at the end of seminar 16, the same thread that I think is woven so nicely into chapter 24. It's around this figure of an other, a big O other, one big O other, if you will. You heard Lacan say in chapter 24 that until set theory came along, it was really easy to confuse a big other for the big other. In other words, to believe that the big other exists, and to accordingly draw it looking something like this. A one encompassed by a circle. However, when set theory comes along, it's impossible to logically maintain this illusion. Because the difference between the set represented by the circle and its single element represented by the one is itself an element to be counted. This is the logic to hold in mind as you're reading these final chapters in seminar 16. We often use obj ah to designate this differential relation. Here, at the end of 16, Lacan is using the set theoretical term of an empty set which looks like this character here again. Exactly, in other words, what the circle would be like without the one in it. And that's pretty damn relevant here. The empty set looks a lot like the circle without the one in it. It's an empty set. Notice how Lacan puts this a few chapters earlier, in chapter 23. Suppose the set is made up of element one and the set which has element one as its only element. That's what I'm drawing here. Here is a set with two distinct elements since one cannot in any way confuse an element with the set which includes only this element as an element of this set. That's the important part here. This element, one, is not the same as the set that encompasses it. And the difference between those two is itself a third element to be counted, which gives us basically three elements. There's the circle that encompasses the one. There's the one encompassed by the circle. And then there's the difference between the circle and the one, the difference between the container and the thing contained here represented by the set theoretical term for an empty set. This third element is itself an element in the set that would otherwise look like this. It exists, in other words, as a subset. The empty set exists in every set as a subset it's always already included in this naive, basic understanding of a set, of a big O other. It's included as what Lacan calls, from Seminar 14 forward, an additional one, a one-too-many. Is how he also referred to it in Seminar 14. The designator for this additional one, that is always already included in every single set is this O with a slash through it, the symbol of the empty set. Then in chapter 24, after making this statement about the distinction between the set and the element it contains, Lacan writes or explains, we're reading what is somehow written down, as we know, chapter 23, There was no English translation, so we worked from the French into the English, and then you had to hear with your ears. Anyway, in chapter 24, Lacan writes this three-part structure like this. One, two, three. These are the three elements. And he uses this one on the outside here to designate or label this circle as an other, a big O other. So... There's your one element. There's the empty set that is necessarily included, which we'll discuss in a moment. And then here are them being grouped together as a set here labeled one. And this little E out here, as we know, is just him saying that this is the first set because this logic is going to keep going. Here's a question. And I think it's good to end this lecture series with questions because, in fact, that's precisely what Lacan leaves us with. Is this symbol for the empty set equivalent to the symbol that we know as little a? In a sense, yes. Because it's a signifier of a relationality at the level of difference. This circle does not equal the one that it contains. And this not equals sign is itself something to be accounted for. So again, we have container, thing contained, and then the logical structural function known as containment. The logic that describes the relationality between container and thing contained. We might just refer to it as containment. But I also want to suggest that the empty set is not the same as obj a, because the empty set means more than pure difference in set theory. You see, the empty set, and there is only one, there can only be one. And the reason why that is, is due to the principle of extensionality, which basically says that if two sets have the exact same elements without any difference between them, then they are the same set. In fact, they don't just equal each other, they are one set because there is no difference between them. Remember, obja A designates the minimum irreducible distance or difference that has to be there in order for two entities to remain distinct. The empty set is only ever one because there is no minimum irreducible distance between that set and another set that also would have no elements they aren't just equal to each other, they are the same, one and the same. All empty sets have exactly the same elements, which is no elements, so there can only be one. And that's why in set theory, we don't talk about an empty set, there is only the empty set. And this is a great clue to what Lacan is doing with the title of Seminar 16. The title could have read, from the big O other to a or one big O other to the little O other. Now, it's really easy to explain the transition from from the big O other to a big O other. This is the transition that we have made effectively over the past couple of seminars. From the fact that the big other doesn't exist except as a virtual operational logic And the fact that avatars of the big other nevertheless do exist as S2s, as cops, as robbers, as lawyers, as judges, and so on and so forth, as parents, right? How about this other shift from one big O other to the little O other? The clue comes to us in the fact that there can only be one empty set. In a real sense the little O other in Lacan's title could be replaced with the empty set. Let's see how far we can take this insight. The empty set, as you heard me say, can only be one. It contains no elements. Notice how this lines up with objea. If objea is an enigmatic object, more of an opening or dispersion than an object really, or at least an ensemble of objects as open and openings as we've been discussing it in this series, if that's what we know about obje a, I would suggest that the empty set is also an enigmatic set. Yes, it's a set, but it's different from all the other sets. Yes, obje a is object little a, but this ain't no regular object. Anxiety is not without an object. Consider, for instance, the empty set of all cats that are also dogs. It's an empty set. There are no cats that are also dogs. They're different species. It's not going to work out. You might have a cat that behaves like a dog and a dog who sometimes affects catitude. But that ain't the same the set of all cats that are also dogs is an empty set because there are no elements that you can fill it with. Let's think harder. The empty set, you heard me say, is a subset of every set. Why is that? Because each and every element of an empty set is also an element of each and every set. And that's the criteria for determining whether or not you have a subset in set theory. If every single element in one set is also included in another, which is not the same as saying they're exactly alike, then that set is a subset of the other set. So consider, for instance, the set of all, I don't know, cats. And then how about um, another set? that would be called like black cats. I got a black cat, I gotta represent. Because all black cats are also included in the set of all cats, black cats is a subset of the set known as all cats. Now here's the thing. Some of you know I got a tortoise shell too. She got the tortitude to match. This cat ain't black. This cat is like brown and tan with weird whites and just, you know, something straight out of hell. You've heard me talk about her before. This cat is not black. She, however, is an element in the set known as all cats. She doesn't fit in the black cat subset. So in other words, the, sub, the set known as all cats includes cats other than those that are black. The black cat subset is thus a subset of the set all cats. Not in fact the same set because all cats includes cats that are not black. Just think through this. It makes a lot of sense if you just think through it at the level of a class and a subclass. Um, The same with all cats that are also dogs. However, there are no cats that are also dogs included in the set known as all cats. Guess what? The set of all cats that are also dogs is also equally devoid of cats that are also dogs. And as a result, the empty set of all cats that are also dogs is also necessarily included in the set known as all cats. Now, this is some pretty rudimentary stuff with regard to set theory, but it is precisely here that Lacan is trying to intervene. He doesn't go as much in the direction of subsets. But what he wants to suggest with this diagram that we were working with is that you would have a set all cats. Here is all cats. This circle is all cats, okay? This one on the inside would be perhaps black cats. It could be whatever you want. But here we're using black cats. There's a subset in the broader set of all cats and then this empty set that is always already included in every set. Here we see the set of all cats that are also dogs. It's an empty set and as a result it is included in this broader set known as all cats. We're moving fast, but I hope we're also moving clearly, coherently, and accessibly. Because that's our goal at every single turn in these series, is to take something that's pretty damn tough and make it clear, coherent, and accessible. Now you heard me just a second ago talk about this title, From an Other to the Other. And you heard me say that he could have added on the front from the big other to one big other to the little o other. That would have been fine. What we can now add to this is the kind of set elements of this. The title as we have it, from an other to the other, we could read as from one set to the empty set. That's what he invites here at the end of 16. But let's get back to this question. Obje a, relative to the empty set. I'm still inclined to overlay these concepts. I think Lacan provides us with ample evidence that this is how he thinks as well, perhaps to the error of both of us. Lacan, as we've seen, clearly suggests that they are affiliated in chapter 24. The empty set, he dubs it a logical, necessary, constitutive hollow. In each and every avatar of the Big Other, in every S2, there will be an empty set, as a hollow around which this S2 is structured. In every an-other, there is this the other, known as the empty set. And what we know is that everything inside a Big O Other, an avatar of the Big Other, is going to turn around this hollow that constitutes it as a structure of knowledge of discourse of disciplinarity this hollow that we also have to count as an additional one an additional one that appears as a hollow as an absence that marks a lack in a structure say what you will this sounds a hell of a lot like ojr to me I would suggest that this correspondence between the empty set and a is made terribly clear at the start of chapter 25 <clears throat> where a is figured as the sign of the empty set even in the diagrams at the start of 25 you can chapter 25 <clears throat> you can see Lacan replacing the empty set with the little a that for us is Truly indicative. I'm going to consider that matter matter settled for the time being because I want to ask another question. I think the most elusive, enigmatic part of this diagram that we get from chapter 24 is not the empty set, it's the one the one that repeats, what about this one that Lacan uses to designate this set? Is it an S1? Is this the S1 that represents the subject 2 and 4 and S2 that is here comprised of a circle with a one and an empty set in it? I think the answer, unfortunately, is yes and no. And even when yes, no, because it's only ever one S1, one of many. And that's partly what we get in the other diagram that Lacan was using. One S1 among many, and this cycle would just continue from here, adding ellipses the exact same way that we did in our second diagram in the series. We see this, again, returning to chapter 23, where Lacan suggests that S1 is outside this circle because it designates what he calls in chapter 23, again, my translation, the limit of the big other as an empty set, where S1 is somehow marking an outer limit of, the, of an big O other qua empty set. Now I think that's a little bit problematic. That's what he says in 23 on my reading. But what I like about this is it does maintain a positionality for that S1 that we've seen before where it is on the outside and exterior to and elusive of any given S2. Tempting to stick with this, but I would suggest it's even more tempting to move on. In chapter 24, Lacan tries to clarify this, by the way. He tries to tell us that this one at the very center of the circle, the original circle, he calls this the first one. The first one that marks the founding of the other, of an other, which is all that's ever existed. But this is somehow primordial. It's a primordial one. So you hear this and you ought to think back to early Lacan and his reading of the unary trait, which we've been over. If you've seen our series on Seminar 3, you know that there's a lot of stuff about the unary trait that's central to what's happening in the psychoses. But here, let's be as technical and precise as possible. Technically speaking, the innermost one alongside the empty set in our original circle with the one in the empty set, if this is the first one of the founding avatar of the big other, the foundational S2, in other words, the of an original big O other, I would suggest that this is not itself a little other or a big other. The one in the center of this circle, alongside the empty set, is not a little other and not a big other, both of which you heard me say. So I want to clarify this. In a sense, we could work it that way, but I don't think that's technically precise enough. We could be more precise and say that it is neither big nor small other, but instead the signifier that represents the subject to another signifier which raises the question, how the fuck did it get in there? What's the story? If this is the signifier that represents the subject for another signifier, how does it get in there? This logic of inclusion where the S1 appears alongside the empty set as one of the founding elements of another, it is complex and quite elusive, even to Lacan at the end of seminar 16. He's got other things he wants to talk about. It'd be great if he had spent more time zeroing in on this question that he touches upon at several points instead of kind of reflecting on whether he's gonna be giving diplomas to his students and who signed them and hand cramps around the marking of the date and so forth, which is in fact how he ends Seminar 16. But it is not how we will end this series. I can't help but wonder, maybe this is precisely why It is precisely here on this topic of the S1 relative to the empty set in and other that it's precisely here that Lacan begins his final session, chapter 25. The same chapter that I said begins in a strong but elusive way, elusive as well. Only after the S1 has linked up with the S2, Lacan suggests, an S2 to and for which it represents the subject, can this S1 retroactively, with what Lacan really well calls retro-efficacy, designate the subject. And that's the key part. That's how he works this logic of inclusion. Yes, that's the S1 that designates a subject, for another signifier, but it's only after it has done its designatory work relative to that other signifier that it can do its referential, representational work of representing a subject. Notice how Lacan puts this in chapter 25. Here, he says, is this schema. Second paragraph. And again, this is the schema where you can see him replacing the empty set with obje It's right there in the margins. This schema emerges from the logical definition that I gave at our second last meeting of the big O other as empty set and of its indispensable absorption of a unary trait. So here we are back to that image of a Trojan horse that absorbs, absorbs, and absorbs signifiers but never disgorges itself, instead just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Here is the iterative second diagram that we developed in this series. The big other is the logic of progressive encompassment by which this S2 enlarges to become this one, to become this one, and so on. As an empty set and of an indispensable absorption of a unary trait. So, what Lacan is here suggesting is that the first signifier swallowed whole by the Trojan horse is a unary trait. This, he says, is the one on the right, the one in the circle, in other words, in order that the subject may be able to be represented there for this unary trait under the species of a signifier. Yes, under the species of a signifier, but the important part is represented there, in the field of an other, in the field of a knowledge, of a discourse, of a discipline. It is there, in the field of S2, that the S1 does its work of representing the subject. Clear? Now check it out. Where the fuck... Addition on my part of the fuck. Does the signifier that represents the subject for another signifier come from? We know where it's headed. It's going towards S2, it's going to an other. Where does it come from? From nowhere. Because it only appears at that this place in virtue of the retro efficacy, there's that word of repetition. It is because the unary trait aims at the repetition of an enjoyment that another unary trait arises subsequently, nachträglich, as Freud puts it. So here is that term once again: repetition. A repetition that for Lacan is not a repetition forward in time, but instead a repetition backward. Where the repetition retroactively designates an earlier moment, entity, or event as an origin. It's important to notice this difference. You've heard me say it before. It's a difference that Walter Benjamin traces out in his second dissertation. The difference between an origin and a genesis. Genesis is a chronological beginning. Origin is a retro effect. At a later date, you look back and identify your origins. That is much more proper to what occurs in psychoanalytic theory and technique. And that's what Lacan is saying here. The repetition of an enjoyment here is one that has a retro efficacy. It's retroactive in its work. And that I think is the important part of all this. It's in fact, the very same logic that we've seen from the start of seminar 16. If you just hold on a second to the retroactive part and just focus strictly first on the foremost connection, the connection between the S1 and the S2, you'll see that we are exactly where we've always been. First and foremost, Before any sort of a retroactive designation of a subject, there is a link to be established between one signifier and another. No signifier can signify on its own, which would be the same as signifying itself, which is also impossible. It's only in differential relation with at least one other signifier that any given S1, any given signifier, can carry meaning. We've been over this a million times. We don't need to say it too many more. And in fact, we won't because we're at the very end of this series. But the first and foremost foundation for this repetitive circuit that we're about to discuss, don't forget, it's basically Lacan's statement about how language works. Signifiers operating in differential relation to each other. If you ask me what the fuck a cat is, and I tell you a cat is what the fuck a cat is, that doesn't help. But if you ask me what a cat is, and I tell you it's a pet, suddenly we're speaking volumes. The same is true of each and every S1 in differential relation to another signifier. Only by entering the field of another does that S1 begin to take on meaning in relation to the other signifiers in that set? And one of the effects of the meaning it takes on is retroactive. It is a retro effect that involves designating a subject, representing a subject. So yes, the subject is what represents, I'm sorry, the signifier is what represents a subject to another signifier. But if you want to start scrambling that, it's that the signifier represents to and with another signifier, and in so doing is able to represent a subject. So there's first the establishment of a differential relation between signifiers, between an S1 and an S2, and only then can that S1, as a second move, a repetitive move, a re-signaling move, Come to represent, to represent a subject. That's not even the most important part in all this, though. The second move here, this repetitive retro-efficacy, whereby the S1, by being linked to an S2, can designate a subject retroactively. Lacan says that what is repeated here is fundamentally an enjoyment. You just heard him say it here. It's the repetition of an enjoyment. Notice where this goes from here. A few more lines down. The unary trait arises in a deferred way, in the place, therefore, of S1, of the signifier, insofar as it represents a subject for another signifier. So far, we are right on point with this issue of retroefficacy. On this I say, everything that is going to arise from this repetition that is repeated by the introduction of the inform of a here the sign of the empty set, is first of all this inform itself, this is a. We'll come to that in a second. I read this though just to remind you that here in chapter 25, at the end of seminar 16, Lacan is saying, this Obj that is a sign of the empty set. Now, whether you want to say that they are interchangeable is another question. But the link is clearly there for Lacan. Worth noting. The stuff about enjoyment, though, is what really trips one's trigger. And it starts when he anticipates people responding to this mathematicization of Obja. So then, you're giving purely formal definitions of obja. He anticipates people saying, No, because all of this is only produced from the fact that at the place of the one on the left of S1, there is what there is, namely, here it is, this enigmatic enjoyment attested to by the fact that we know nothing about it except the following that I am going to reproduce at every stage where it is distinguished. Nothing is known about it except the fact that it wants another enjoyment. This is true everywhere. This could have been the greatest chapter in all of Seminar 16, if Lacan had just stopped there and made that the third and final paragraph in the final chapter of Seminar 16. Really terrific stuff. It would have been even better if he had spent the other 10 or 15 pages of this remaining chapter just unfolding that insight about this enigmatic enjoyment reproduced at every stage and the fact that we know nothing about it except that it wants another enjoyment. How are we to understand all this? Assuming that I'm right and that Lacan gives us zero help with the topic, from here on out in the final chapter. All we know for sure at this point, at the end of seminar 16, without reading forward into Simula Khan's other work, namely seminar 17, which is almost certainly where we're headed next and almost certainly where we're going to get insight into this question of enjoyment around repetition. All we know for sure right now, though, at the end of seminar 16, is this. The indefinitely repeating structure that emerges from these S1s that keep popping out. And what Lacan is saying here, retroactively, to the extent that one might even draw an arrow from each S2 to the barred subject and this might be the final addition to our diagrammatic work. The S1 links up to an S2, and once they're linked up, it is able to designate the barred subject. Here's a broader S2, once linked up with an S1, can do the work of designating the barred subject, and so on and so forth. All we know for sure is that the big other Is this repeating structure, the structure that unfolds as a result of this S1 that keeps popping back out, if you will, is the big other? Which brings us back to the question of objaya. What the fuck is this thing? Object little a in all of this, you've heard me say, and this is strictly following Lacan's own thought, is the irreducible void, as real as real gets, into which the big O other, as an operation, pushes. I believe that was the verb we used, pushes. Maybe something better here would be expands. Much like the universe expands, but into what exactly? Into what does the universe expand? Truth be told, though, I don't like this expansion bit either. Even expands, falls short, and fails to capture what I think Lacan is after here. As we've seen, object little a is also, more precisely, the hollow in each and every one instantiation and big O other right, we're not talking about the big O other, we're talking about all the big others out there, all the avatars, have in themselves a hollow, a constitutive void at their core. And this is the same hollow that repeats in each iteration of the big other's logic. Isn't that precisely what we see in this diagram? The empty set included here is the empty set that's included here, is the empty set that as the ones and circles keep popping out, is still there. And we know mathematically speaking that there is only one. There is only one empty set. And yet we hear Lacan saying that the empty set in each iteration of this structure is different from its predecessor. What do we to make of all this? Here's what I would suggest, also in keeping with what we've learned in this seminar. The repetition in question here is a repetition with a difference. The empty set at the core of the first and is not the same as the empty set at the core of the next another in this progressively encompassing sequence. We've heard Lacan say this, how does this figure again with the tension we know in set theory, which says there is only one empty set. There can only be one empty set because the empty set doesn't contain any elements. And so any other empty set that has no elements technically has the exact same elements as the other empty set. And as a result, they're the same. In other words, the empty set of all cats that are also dogs is exactly the same as the empty set of all dogs that are also cats. Both of those sets have no elements in them, and as a result, they are exactly the same, without difference, which doesn't mean they equal each other, it means there is only one. That's why, again, there is no an empty set, it is only always a the empty set. How are we to reconcile this with Lacan's claim, which I still believe is quite right, for reasons we're about to discuss. His claim that the empty set changes, that it's different with each iteration of the other's logic at the level of its repetitive, encompassing avatars. Here's what I think the difference is here that we're adding to repetition. It's the element of time, an existential element an element that brings to light the second part of Kierkegaard's famous axiom, that life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. The retro-efficacy that we've been talking about captures the way that meaning is assigned retroactively. Life can only be understood backward. When we add the element of time, life being lived forward, we can start to account for the difference. And if you recall, one of the ways that we worked the basic topology that became our third diagram was to label that diachronic arrow time, but also difference, and to label the retroactive arrow meaning, but also repetition. And If you need to see what this looks like again, at the end of our time together, we can draw it very simply as follows. And I'm gonna add the repetition bit and the difference bit too, so we can see just exactly where they fit. This will strike you as familiar because you have all seen this before. Here it is. The diachronic arrow is that of difference and the retroactive arrow is that of repetition. I draw this just to confirm that we are still squarely in the operational logics that we've been in this entire seminar. The element, in other words, that makes the empty set in this circle different from the empty set in this circle is time. That is the figure of difference here. Object little a as a temporally torqued empty set. And that's how I would define it. Here at the end of seminar 16. The difference between the empty set and obj a is that obj a has a temporal torque to it. And it's what allows us to mark these differences between empty sets in each iteration of the same topological structure. It allows us to mark these differences, and this is precisely what Lacan means, I believe, when he says the agency of object little a as such. In chapter 24, the agency that he's referring to is the capacity of a to designate these temporal differences, a temporal slip, if you will, between each empty set as it recurs with a difference in the iterative structural logic known as the big other. Yes, I hear you. Little a can be used to designate lost objects and found openings and the space in between them. You've heard all that as well. And we've seen this play out pretty readily in the developing theories of the drives that we've been working out from Lacan's own thought. But here's what I would suggest: of those three functions of OBJR, as lost object, found opening, and distance between the two i would suggest that that third function obje's ability to designate the minimum irreducible gap furrow or hollow between a lost object and a found opening i'm going to go on a limb and say that that is in fact its primary function it is primary there as the designator of a gap between lost objects and found openings it can designate those as well and it sure as hell does Like Lacan, I'm tempted to see little a as an empty set, but I want to add that it's a temporally torqued empty set. And atop that, I want to suggest this. Little a, I would suggest, is not exactly the empty set. Instead, hear me now, it's a measure of the difference, however slight, between each iteration of the empty set in each progressively more encompassing avatar of the big other. A logic of progressive encompassment that unfolds in time. This is the main point. And not just in time, that shit unfolds over time as an enfoldment of time. And let me tell you, if you are thinking about time in a chronological sense, when you hear me use that word, I will just add this then. It is something that also unfolds against time, against the notion of chronos. What we have here, in short, is structural repetition with a temporal difference. That's what we see unfolding in this diagram. We see a structural repetition allowing for a series of temporal differentials, And at the risk of putting too much emphasis on this, and maybe even worse, too little, too late of an emphasis on this point, I want to conclude with a mythology of sorts. A mythology that I think is thoroughly Lacanian, risky as hell, and is probably going to result, if I'm lucky, in some hate mail. You know, of the intellectual kind. Sir, I just want to question your final mythology that you offer here. All right. In the beginning was the word, or as Lacan often describes it, the notch, the etch, the groove, the furrow in the antler, the stone, the soil, the earth. Each of which functioned as a single stroke. In short, a one. Here is the U-N, the non, in the unary trait, the one that we've discussed in previous series. Here is the U-N that functions as, yes, the number one, but more primordially as the slash, the furrow, the groove, represented by this vertical line that we usually understand as the number one. You know, of course, when we don't understand it as a vertical pronoun, designator of our, quote, selves, But that's not what we're after here. Because in the beginning was the word. And the question then becomes, what of the world? Into which it cuts. The word retroactively, with what we have just called retroefficacy. It designated the world before its arrival. Not just as Lacan describes it in the 50s namely as a here and now of the all in the process of becoming. No, the word retroactively designates the world before its arrival as a wordless world, no longer, and yet one that will ever remain as such. As a no longer, in lost, subtracted relation to this new world in the shape of an ever-present in-form of loss. Think to this coinage in Seminar 16, this in-form that Lacan is making. Again, not enough of, but sufficient for us to gather what he's doing with Obje'ah as a hollow, an in-form of loss. Here, I would suggest, is our empty set. Here is our Obje'ah a figure of lost gained anew each day. More than an object forever lost to oblivion. And I think that's the key point here. What we're gaining is a signifier of loss, a gain that we achieve every single day. More than a question about an object that is lost forever to oblivion. This is happening in the field of the signifier not in the field of the object qua reality, qua world before word. And I would suggest that we gain this figure of loss in and as hollows in ourselves and our others. Here also is the signifier, and with it what Hannah Arendt identifies as immortality. A capacity to live on after death in the field of language, legacy, culture, civilization. Final word, that we're out. If the first signifier was the notch in the bone, the second was almost certainly that of the tombstone, followed almost inevitably by the unary trait. The unary trait as we've been discussing it in this series, as a singular trait of some avatar of the big other that splits us without and splits us from within. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.